Petersfield's Shine Radio. Shine Radio's Growing Together with Claire Venice and Steve Amos is sponsored by DeMello and Company. Financial advice for you, your family and your future. Hello and thank you for joining us in Growing Together, the gardening podcast from Petersfield's Shine Radio. I'm Claire Venice. And I'm Steve Amos. And we're back at the Adhurst Estate Allotments on a murky morning, Steve. It is a murky day, isn't it? What weird weather we've been having. Yes, it has been really strange because this past weekend, the last weekend in January, was quite spring-like. I've been in the garden. Well, did you, I don't know whether you saw the news. The hottest day ever on record in the UK in January. Nearly 20 degrees in Scotland. 19.6 degrees or something like that. That's not right. It's weird, isn't it? I was, uh, I was walking the dog yesterday, actually, and I bumped into a lovely old lady. She reminded me of my granny, shuffling along, walking her little dog, and we were talking about the weather, and she said, well, it's just like a spring day, isn't it? I said, it really is like a spring day. I said, almost summer-like. Well, summer's on its way, she said. <laughs> I said, yes, but what day is summer going to be this year? <laughs> you just don't know, do you? you it's don't. bizarre, really bizarre. Love her optimism. Though. Oh, I know. Really and it bizarre. doesn't help, does it? Because the beginning of the year, it was wet. Then we had that really cold cold snap and now it's got quite mild again so the bulbs have been do we come up do we not come up do we just wait do we and the trees as well the buds the buds on the trees are they budding are they not budding let's hope we don't get an early flush of blossom from the fruit trees because we know what happens when a cold snap comes we get no apples do we and i have been known to wrap my apple trees up i remember you did that last year didn't you (laughs) (laughs) out like a crazy person at night wrapping your (laughs) apple trees up in fleece i love it exactly that Well, I noticed as I came down here to the allotment, Steve, you've been bringing bags of compost out onto your plots. As it's a bit drier, it's a bit warmer, get the compost down and cover them again. We're talking of looking after your plots. Joining us in this episode, we are delighted to have special guest Sheila Das, who is garden manager at RHS Wisley. And she talks about her journey into horticulture, as well as her approach and research in soil health. Really interesting. Sounds really interesting. Although it's a murky morning, there are lots of little voices. There are, aren't there? The, the little school has come down from the village. It's so sweet seeing them walking down the road. They're all manacled together like some chain gang. And they, they come down here with their little legs. And don't get me wrong, I've not got the biggest legs in the world. <laughs> but they must be knackered by the time they get here. Yeah. And they come down here, they spend about an hour messing about in their garden and then traipse back. I'm sure they'll sleep well tonight, though. I'm sure they will. Very, very sweet to hear them playing. You might, you might hear them too. So your plots here, Steve, you Mm. were talking about changing the wood around the raised beds. Yes, and I'm still talking about it. (laughs) (laughs) Good, good. If you notice over by the, uh, the carrot bed, there's a new bed. And I'm just sort of going through the beds now and, and looking at really what needs needs changing. You know, it's a lot of money. You've got to look at ways of how we can do things a bit more frugally. My opinion of allotmenting, it's a way of gardening frugally. You know, absolutely, if you had all the, the money in the world, you'd have the best allotment ever. But look on Facebook, look on Gumtree and, and pick up stuff. People are always getting rid of bits of timber. The trouble is, my bed's being nearly three metres long. No one's giving away three metre lengths of timber, unfortunately. I can't imagine they are. <laughs> well, it's the same as me, actually. I'm thinking about redoing my compost area. OK. Um, and I need some timber for that. So right. I'm looking at alternative ways to, to get that done. But I want to do that this time of year, before I start growing around it, mm. so I can properly plan it out and see where everything's going to go. And that's also something to think about this time of year, is, is plan your plots. Absolutely. And I say that to everyone that that takes on a plot here is is plan 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 before you put a fork in the ground 
have a plan because you can be completely overawed by the magnitude of the task ahead. And if you split it up into smaller bits, but just make it more manageable. And then when you come up to the plot or in your garden, if you've got that plan, you can work through it one bed at a time and you're not overawed with the magnitude of the task ahead. Good advice, because it should be fun, shouldn't it? I mean, we all enjoy getting out in this fresh air, enjoying our time in our gardening areas, and it should be fun and not a chore. And I think as soon as it becomes a chore, you need to think about, the, one, whether you're doing it right, or two, whether allotmenting or gardening in general is, is right for you. Because if it does become a chore, you've lost the love, haven't you? Well, let's hear from Sheila Das in the first of two interviews with her in this episode about how she started her career in horticulture and discovered her love of growing vegetables. I've come to RHS Wisley to meet with garden manager Sheila Das, who is in charge of education, edibles, seeds and well-being here. And we're sat in Sheila's beautiful office. Hello, Sheila. Hi, Claire. Thank you very much for inviting me here. Thank you for coming. It's a lovely day. It is a beautiful day and I think we'll pop outside in a little bit. But first of all, we wanted to talk a little bit about your journey to getting to your position here at RHS Wisley. And I have to say, your office is stunning. <laughs> it's in a beautiful building just to the side of the main entrance. And we're surrounded by gorgeous books, a large amount of pine cones. Yes. <laughs> and a fantastic view. Absolutely, Claire, yeah. So we're in the old laboratory here at, at Wisley. And many people come here and they think it was, they think it was a house. They assume that this lovely arts and crafts style building must have been a house that came with a big estate and that's why we've got a garden here. But actually it never was. But it was purpose built originally as a school of horticulture. So there was a small section of it built in 1907 as a school of horticulture and then it was extended and there were all sorts of laboratories added and there was a herbarium and a science library and it's where our scientists really have been carrying out horticultural science for over 100 years. But it's an old building and maybe not fit for 21st century science. So really exciting development for me as part of the developments in the garden over the last sort of eight years. Um, We built our new centre for science and learning up on the hill at Wisley. So our scientists moved out into more modern accommodation and it meant we could show them to the public more. So you can see into the herbarium, you can see our laboratories. And this building we've opened up now. So we've got a wonderful exhibition which actually tells a little bit about what's gone on here, here over the years. But I'm in here because I look after students, uh, apprentices and professional work placements in the garden at Wisley. And that's part of my remit here and our School of Horticulture's in the garden here. There's a real sense of tradition here, of history here, of growing and learning. It must be a wonderful place to work. It's incredible. And I look at the view out of my office is amazing. It's been much commented upon. Um, but And I can't quite believe it, really. It's, I, I, never, I never planned it. It's one of those things where suddenly you end up doing something and you think, gosh, this, how did I get here? And, and I changed career, actually. So I haven't always been in horticulture. So I don't know, about sort of 16 or 17 years ago, I was working in um, logistics in the supply chain, distributing CDs and DVDs when we used to have those. And don't get me wrong, I did actually enjoy my job. It was really varied and I worked with a wide range of people and it involved working with people and planning projects and, you know, I love spreadsheets and all that kind of thing. But I realised it wasn't maybe 
where I wanted to be forever inside a warehouse. And and so we were having a restructure and I managed to, to restructure myself out of the business. <laughs> and um, my mum had just got an allotment. So I went and spent three months um, kind of helping her out on her allotment, thinking what to do with life. And obviously had this eureka moment that I discovered. I used to garden as a child with my mum. So my mum and grandmother um, were very keen gardeners. But then I stopped, as you do, in your teenage years. And this is something we're trying to look at at the RHS at the moment. And then, yes, went away and then didn't come back to it until that period of time when I helped mum on her allotment. And, and thought, oh, wow, this, this is, um, it's creative. It requires planning. I'm outside. I'm being physical. This feels like a thing that I really, really want to do for the rest of my days. So you went to study? Yes, so I did what was then the RHS General Certificate, now known as the RHS Level 2. I did it in a year at the wonderful Capel Manor College. I was at the Gunnersbury site, so I used to go there for a day a week, still kind of consulting in my old role, and that allowed me to make that transition, really. And that was amazing, going for a day. I couldn't believe it, to be honest. I, I literally couldn't believe that I could spend a day with people talking about plants and gardens and it was a thing it was a thing you could do and it was then potentially a thing you could do as a job and I was really lucky after I'd done that actually to find a job in a hotel garden near to me I used to live in Watford so there's a hotel called The Grove and uh, they were recruiting and I just went along I did a working morning and very little experience but yeah wonderful senior gardener there took me on and I had a couple of years really cutting my teeth learning what it was to be a professional gardener and I think that's quite different to just doing things at home you, you do have to have a different mindset really and then I wanted to study more so I actually applied to do the uh, Q diploma not Wisley I applied to Q and uh, I spent three years at Q uh, studying on their diploma in horticulture before then getting a job afterwards I went to English Heritage a wonderful historic property in Bedfordshire called Rest Park and interestingly, there at Rest Park, you know, it's a big formal landscape, but they were also um, launching the, the sort of historic and botanic gardens training programme. They were doing a two year programme. So there was some horticultural education and teaching involved with that, which was something that I've, I've always been interested in training. It's all of those transferable things that just kind of thrown into the pot. All came together here. Yeah. <laughs> well, talking of the educational side of things, you now look after the educational side here as well. Yeah. How many students, apprentices, do you have every year? Well, in total, our cohort is 33. So we can take on 18 or 19 new learners every year, um, depending. We have an arboriculture apprentice who starts every other year. It's a two-year programme. So we run arboriculture apprenticeship. Um, we have horticultural apprentices, obviously, and they're on a two-year programme, and we have four of those in each year. We have what we call professional work placements, which is a one-year placement, paid placement, not a qualification, actually. It's about working with a specific team in the garden, looking at a specialist area. So you'll work with one of the garden teams. We have 12 areas at Wisley, 12 garden teams, and all covering different bits of what we do at Wisley. So you pick out one of those and you can work with them for a year. But that's much more about you've already got a qualification, but you want to kind of consolidate some of that technical knowledge. And then we have 20 students on our two-year diploma programme, which is a, a level three and level four programme. And that's in horticultural practice. So it's very practically based. You work full time in the garden and then you have a, a series of lecture weeks throughout the year. And you need to study and produce projects outside of work time as well. So it's very intense, but it's a real kind of immersion into a whole huge variety of things that you can then go to pursue in horticulture. And some of that is things that, you know, that are very 
very obvious. So different garden areas having different styles, that's part of the diversity. But also what we do at the RHS, we do a lot of work with communities, education, shows, lots of different things that, that, that our students can kind of dip their toe in, our science teams, and, and really see the breadth of variety that you've got in horticultural careers. And is that open to, to all ages? Yes, any age. And I think this is really important. I was 37 when I started the Q Diploma. So I had three years of study ahead of me. I turned 40 in my third year on the Q Diploma. So that's fine. It doesn't matter, you know, and, and you bring life experience with you. In fact, I was with some of our ex-students last night. We were doing an event for our careers week and uh, they pointed out that on their course in their year there were 30 years difference between the youngest and the oldest so it really doesn't matter and that is the beauty of horticulture as a whole because yes there's the physical side of it of course there is but there's so much more to it than that and actually you can create balance within that depending on your age or your aptitude and to be honest with you I mean we have volunteers here who are 70 years old who are fitter than me um, and so actually that age is is irrelevant really I think so that's really exciting we'd love more young people to come straight from school into horticulture we'd love schools to be talking about it as a as a career and really talking about the diversity of it you know if you're artistic you can be in horticulture if you're sciencey you can be in horticulture if you like to be physical you can be in horticulture if you like wildlife you can be in horticulture so it's everything for everybody really do you do much outreach at schools yeah so there's a number of things we have a wonderful campaign for school gardening and you can go onto our website and learn all about that that has a huge set of resources actually for schools more so independently to kind of implement in their own schools and help teachers and and students at their school to really understand what they can do at their schools to really introduce that and understand how that kind of correlates obviously to the curriculum so that's that's a resource our campaign for school gardening we do have an outreach team so we have teams who work in our communities and sometimes they they interact with school settings and they go into schools and we have people who can help bring on those sort of school teachers as educators of horticulture as well. And then we have a new initiative called New Shoots, which is really exciting, which is looking at a whole host of things about how we can get people to have experiences in horticulture, any people from any background, from anywhere, to really find horticulture accessibly. So, um, and so New Shoots is doing that and I would encourage anyone who's interested in a career in horticulture or just interested in learning more about it to, to have a look at some of those resources as well. So there's lots there and I think that's, that's what I love about the RHS is it's very, very outward looking and it always has been. It's always been, yes, there's the element we want to develop, we've got five gardens now nationally, but actually our reach is, is much more broad than that, both, both in the UK and across the globe and connecting internationally as well. Sounds great. Exciting <laughs> possibilities. Yeah. Well, I'd like to talk to you a bit more outside about what you're doing here with No Dig in the Edible Garden. Let's go outside. Well, I don't know about you, Steve, but I was in the garden a lot this last weekend and I am aching. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, dear. <laughs> what have you been doing then to be aching, or don't we ask? I've been pruning Oh. a lot in my front garden which I dug up about 10 years ago to make it into a potager, really. So it's a mixture of flowers and vegetables and herbs. Uh, my creative space, really. I, yeah, yeah. I love it. It's not the biggest space in the world, but it's just right for me. But at the front, I 
planted a bare root Ragosa rose hedge. Okay. And I wanted Ragosa roses because when they flower, they're a single flower. So they're great for bees, mm. pollinators to they're get They're very into. open, aren't they? Yeah. So I planted 30 or so little whips. Okay. And they looked like nothing, obviously, 10 years ago. Yeah. Now they're quite substantial plants and they are spiky. They are. They're really fine thorns, aren't they? Yeah. They're not like your, your sort of hybrid teas or anything like that with the great big thorns, which you can see and avoid. Those Ragosa roses, they're just full of... Oh, they're horrible, aren't they? Yeah, they're pretty nice. How's your hands? I, look, I've only got one Oh, you must have had mark. good gloves. I had really good gloves, and that was going to say. Excellent. Good, good gloves are the key yeah. to pruning roses, whether they are rugosas or whether they are tea roses or, or climbing roses that have spikes on all over the place. Good gloves. But I sometimes take it in stages because the hedge is quite big. But I did it all in one did you? row. No wonder you're aching though. Yeah, but it is a time of year to prune your roses, whether that be a hedge of ragosa roses or a shrub rose, a climbing rose. I was doing it last weekend as well, helping my friend. They've got a raised bed, which is all roses, beautiful roses. They're iceberg, I think, is the variety. They're beautiful, pure white, absolutely gorgeous, smell amazing. But they're a bit old and a bit woody, so um, I've been a bit brutal this year with them taking them down didn't use secateurs not a chainsaw don't worry I didn't use a chainsaw <laughs> I used a big set of loppers wow yeah well I did half and half last year and they responded really well so the lot's gone this year yeah my friend was a bit shocked they'll be fine they were really healthy last year it's also time to cut the deadwood mm. off too and I had quite a bit on one of mine oh really and sometimes the plants suffer with um, black spot as well. Okay. So make sure you do clean your secateurs between pruning each plant. Yeah, it spreads like wildfire, that stuff, doesn't it? And the thing is, when you're pruning roses, to remember an open structure, a bit like your trees. Look for crossed stems, because that all leads to disease, because they rub together. I'm showing you, obviously, good for radio. Mm -hmm. they, they rub together, create weakness infection can get in so make sure you've got a nice open structure with your plants and if you're looking to increase your roses in your garden this year it's still bare root season you can never have enough roses it's interesting actually you said something earlier about not having a big space in your front garden a lot of people think oh you know i've got to have a big garden if i want to grow veg i've got to have dedicated veg space and this that and the other you really don't there's so many ins into gardening you don't need the space so if you're listening to this and want to do something why not come along to the seed swap in march and talk to us there's going to be loads of experts there talk to us about how to get into it what to sow what you can grow on your window ledge what you can grow by your front door anything's possible good point steve because the seed swap will take place on saturday march the 9th i know we've mentioned it before we're going to keep mentioning it because we're so excited about it this is the second year that we have organized the seed swap and this year it's going to be at winton house on the high street in petersfield from 10 until 2. there will be a couple of workshops you can join that will be free one with helia bowling who talks you through starting a garden for cut flowers and the other workshop will be hosted by none other than our very own Steve Amos. I know, I'm terrified. <laughs> <laughs> You'll be fine because you're talking about how to prepare your plot. Exactly. For the year. It's what I know, it's what I love. Absolutely. We'll be fine. We'll also be joined by various different local gardening organisations and groups. It's going to be a really fun day. And even if you want to just come for a slice of cake, and a cup of tea come along we've got a seed sowing corner as well for younger growers if they'd like to come along and plant a seed they can do it that day take it home and watch it grow throughout the year fantastic so. start them young 
How's your greenhouse coming on? It needs a clean. I didn't clean it in the autumn okay. because I had started to sow some flower seeds there. And so I'm waiting for it to be a bit warmer and I can get everything out and give it a clean yep. because it's getting packed. Is it already? Yeah. yeah. How's yours? Full. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. I know. I need a bigger greenhouse, but it's okay because I've got a conservatory. So I've got two of my big propagators in there and one is full <laughs> already with tomatoes, chilies, aubergines, sweet peppers. Now is the time to start saving. I did start and it was such a joy. I've been holding off because mm. I didn't want to start too early, but I don't have a propagator. Okay. So I have brought the seeds in to sit on a windowsill where there's a radiator underneath okay. and I will keep an eye on them and once they're germinated I'll yeah. whip them back in the cold. That's the thing isn't it, things get really leggy really quickly so the mistake a lot of people make is leave stuff on that window ledge by the radiator for far too long. Realistically at about 18 to 20 degrees seeds should be up within a week to 10 days and once they're up move them away from that radiator by all means keep them in the good light but get them away from that radiator because they'll just go far too leggy the other thing to think about if you're using just a seed tray on a window ledge if you don't have a propagator a big poly bag just put a polythene bag over the top and that creates moisture and a really great environment for seeds to germinate good idea yeah it's a great time of year to start tomatoes the aubergines peppers sweet and hot and hot yep and I've also put some leeks in. I've grown leeks for years. I just don't use them enough. Oh, do you not? So I've, I've got a pack of seeds. I'll bring them to the seed swap. I love them. Well, they're great for soups, stocks. And also, I let a few of them go up and then they create their beautiful allium flower. Oh, they're gorgeous. Um, they? Which, again, is great for pollinators. And then, if you're lucky, they'll self-seed. I like to let that happen. Oh, <laughs> that gives me the hibber-jibbers, Claire. <laughs> Self-seeding vegetables. Yeah. Whatever next. <laughs> you're telling you mix up your colours next. I might do. No, you won't. <laughs> well, someone who knows a thing or two about growing vegetables is Sheila Das. And I spoke to her at the World Food Garden at RHS Wisley to find out what they're doing that's new and exciting there. We've headed up to the hilltop where we're in the World Food Garden now and it's a beautiful morning. There's a bit of a wind, but it's pure blue sky up here. What a lovely spot. Yeah, it is. It, it gets baked, it gets the sun, uh, but it does get that wind whipping across. So it's, it's fair to say, I think, that as a site, it has its growing challenges. But we identified this as the site. This is, this is part of our edibles landscape at Wisley. And I think what we're really keen to talk to people about is you've got what you've got. You know, let's work out what we can do on the site that we've got. So, and we'll adapt to it, which is what most people have to do in their gardens, I think, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> now this, this site opened in June, 2021. So you're heading into the third year. What things have you learned as a result of, of growing food here? We've really learned to relax a little bit about what might have been previously perceived as the rule book in inverted commas. So we went into this project uh, very much thinking that this, this garden, well, the whole of our edible landscape is respectful of soil. So we operate a no dig approach, if we call it that. So we don't routinely turn over our soil and we're trying to build soil health. And on a sandy soil in Surrey, that's a place to experiment you know the challenges that we have with that are like we said it is very sunny and it does get very windy so that sandy soil dries out really quickly so we have to make sure we have a good layer of mulch to try and trap moisture in as much as possible so that's definitely one thing we've learned and in fact this year we've changed our mulch to experiment with a slightly thicker uh, bulkier mulch just to see if we can lock in a bit more moisture the other thing i think is we we very much wanted to operate this garden in a a chemical free way, an input free way actually, as much as possible. 
So we don't use any chemicals, we don't use any artificial feeds, we literally feed our soil with mulch and from the healthy soil we grow healthy plants. We have created like a diverse set of planting which invites in all sorts of other creatures to inhabit the space with us. Sometimes they want to eat the things that we eat and we're learning which of those are more prolific than others but equally we're not then out there to annihilate them or get rid of them what we're trying to do is encourage as much kind of predator prey balance as possible in the garden but that's really positive so you will come here you'll see things with nibbled leaves that's okay because that just means that we're inhabiting an ecosystem so if something's not eating your garden then there's something something wrong there you know yeah. <laughs> So those are really a couple of things that we've really focused on and the learnings that we're getting out of that are really exciting. Was the garden originally set up as a no-dig garden? Yes. We had fabulous contractors, a company called Landform and a chap called Mark Gregory, who people who look at Chelsea might have heard of Mark Gregory. They were involved and they were really, really helpful in trying to find the best way to set up our beds in what would then ongoing be a no-dig environment. Obviously, we had to do some digger work with the site as it was. So what they did was, it was really interesting, they excavated the whole site and they filled it full of subsoil. So you can imagine with all the earthworks of the building, there was a lot of soil hanging around. We'd carefully kept the topsoil in a pile. And my one piece of advice to any gardener is if you produce soil waste, if you call it waste, if you produce soil in your garden from any project, don't get rid of it. It's such a precious commodity and it's yours. So we kept that and it was a huge pile, big stack of it in the Arboretum for two years. And then when we came to build the garden here, the landform team excavated the whole lot. They filled it to ground level with subsoil and that allowed them to drive all over it, put the fences up, put all the bed edges in and actually make the shape of the garden. So they did all that, but then when they'd laid the bed shapes out, they just took out about 40 centimetres, 45 centimetres of that subsoil and then replaced it with our lovely topsoil. Now, what we didn't do then, which in a kind of digging mentality you would do, is incorporate organic matter. We didn't mix it into that soil. We put the soil in and we put the organic matter on the top. And that was quite a departure from what you know people might think that you should do. Fair to say though, we'd been no dig at Wisley for some time up to this point, so we knew it would work. And I really wanted to use this opportunity to see if it would work and, and what sort of growth we were getting that first season. And how has it, how has it performed over the, over the last year? It, it was mind blowing. That first season was mind blowing. Bearing in mind our topsoil had been stacked up in a big, you know, we're talking meters high heap. So I thought, oh, it will be anaerobic. It won't have any goodness in it. There won't be any life in it, but it had enough to grow us an amazing crop in that first year. And we hope that we're building on that fertility all the time. We literally didn't plant a plant in this garden until the 3rd of May, 2021. And we opened on the 24th of June. So it was all planted in a few months. And then if you fast forwarded uh, to, to look at it in the September, it was like an established garden that had been here for years. So I think the, the thing that I often say to people is, don't be nervous of trying something new. It might not work, but it might just work. So don't be afraid of what we might think. Oh, it could fail. There's no failure. There's only a learning. So why, why no dig? I mean, we are used to grabbing a spade, popping it in the ground, digging up the soil. There's a, there's a process within that. And there's a kind of feel good factor as well of, of feeling like you're doing something when you're digging the ground. Why stop? What would be the benefit to stop doing that and use a no-dig approach in a garden? Yeah, I mean, this is something that I came across many years ago with a well-known chap called Charles Dowding, who's very well known for his work in that sort of no-dig arena. Why no-dig is a really good question, and there are lots of answers. There are practical answers, 
there are scientific answers and there are philosophical answers. Philosophically, I will often say it feels like the right thing to do. If we want to start emulating nature, nature has a really great system. Nature developed the most infinitely complex system and we'll never understand it but it works, it hangs together, it creates balance and it sustains. And there isn't, yeah, that thing, when we interfere with some of those cycles, we can put it out of balance. So really that's what it's all about, is keeping the balance. In a practical sense, in your soil, nature developed a system whereby soil is an amazing thing. You know, people often talk about soil sequestering carbon, for example. That is one thing that it does to a certain degree. It's very complex carbon relationships between the atmospheres and soils and how things are stored. It's so complex, I don't understand them. But it does that, but then also it hosts so much life. And all of that life then contributes to a system which then interacts with the rest of the sort of ecosystem, the environment. So if you think you have big fungal networks in the soil, we're starting to learn much more about fungi and, and how important they are. They have these things called mycelium, which are sort of threads, they're root-like threads. They connect together and they help to transport water, nutrients and support a whole host of life in soil. And the actual physical activity that that mycelium is doing is it's creating channels in the soils. It's aerating it. So if we start thinking about our digging analogy again, what do we think we're doing when we're digging? We think we're aerating the soil, we think we're improving the soil, but actually the fungi are going to do that for us anyway and all of the life in soil is going to do that. They're going to create channels through which air and water can flow and we know that plant roots need an aerobic environment. Not to mention there are billions of life forms in soil all performing very different functions and, and activities and all going up to make up that wonderful balanced structure. And again, I, I would say we'll, we'll never really know the true complexity of that. The thing that's quoted very often, you know, a handful of soil can hold more microbes and more organisms in it than human beings on the planet. So we can't get our heads around that. We know more about space than we know about what's going on under the ground, which is really mind blowing. But what all of those things are doing, so importantly, again, coming back to the system and how it all hangs together, they, with the above ground parts of the system, so we're thinking sunshine, atmosphere, plants, plant roots then get into soil and they, they are the connector between the above and the below ground. They're actually all just feeding nutrients to each other. Basically, it's just a really mutually symbiotic system. Everybody is helping everybody else. It's a wonderful community. If there are too many baddies, then, you know, the goodies come along and they balance them out. I mean, being very oversimplistic and slightly childlike about it, but that's how I feel about soil, so that's fine. <laughs> um, but if we leave it alone, fundamentally, Claire, I think that's it. That's what I worked out was, it, let's just leave it alone and see what it does. And then your plants can tell you actually what's happening. They are really good indicators of telling you whether they're happy or not. And, and they'll get their roots down into the soil. Now we're learning lots about plants emit exudates. So these are things that flow out of their roots and other soil microbes can feed off of those. So the, the life in the soil will feed off these exudates coming out of the plant. They might excrete some things and the plant might feed off of the nutrition that comes from that is one way that that cycle happens. So there's a nutrient cycle turning sunlight into sugars down into the soil and that comes back into the plant and the plant can continue growing. So when your plant's growing happily, you get a feeling that that relationship is working really well. And the other thing that plants can do is they can be indicators. So we have these things called weeds which pop in and the situation is absolutely right for where they want to grow. So they're telling you that, oh, if I've got a deep tap root, for example, like a dandelion or a dock, 
this soil is a bit on the tight side. We need to break it up a bit. We need to get down there, mine the minerals from deeper down, break up the structure of the soil and start creating a, a better habitat. So all of that complexity is the very long answer to why not dig? <laughs> if all of that complexity is going on, why would you want to break it? Yeah. I think you mentioned the fact that it feels good and it does. It's part of our need as human beings to control things as well. But we can have that relationship with nature in a different way. Now, you don't throw away the spade. You still need to mulch. You still need to shovel things. You still need to dig a hole to plant a tree or plant something. It's not illegal to dig into the soil in a no-dig situation. There's no law around this, but it's just about using common sense. And, and a different mindset. Yeah. So if a gardener would like to change their gardening practices and, and adopt a no-dig approach to gardening, how would they start? Yeah, well, the first key thing, Claire, is to step back and have a look and not do anything. Uh, work out what you want in your garden and go from there really. So I obviously I like growing food and uh, when I moved into a new garden back in 2019 uh, there was a big area of lawn in, in a nice sized garden and I thought well I don't need all that lawn. So the lawn had been mown quite repeatedly for a number of years. It didn't have lots of weeds in it was actually a little bit mossy, which suggested to me maybe the drainage wasn't brilliant. Now, many people will know that with no dig, you'll hear that people put cardboard down. And the reason you put cardboard down is to prevent some of that weed emergence, if you like. It just slows down weeds getting through. And then you put a compost or a mulch on top. I didn't feel I had a big weed problem. I'll be honest as well, I couldn't be bothered to get the cardboard. I, I was impatient and I wanted to just do it. And I had the mulch, so I had some manure, some very well rotted manure. I cut the grass. I raked off a little bit of the moss, but that was more feeling because I should. I probably wouldn't bother now. And then I just covered it with a couple of inches of manure, not even very thick. If you were going to do this normally, I would encourage people to go a bit thicker. If you're mulching normally in a year, just a regular bed, you're going to use about an, a, an inch in old money, so about two and a half centimetres of mulch. It's really not very much. If you're starting a new bed, you might want to go thicker up to about seven and a half centimetres or a, a few inches. So I was somewhere in between that with this bed that I made and I grew veg in it that year. And it literally was enough mulch there to suppress the grass growth coming through. I didn't have a lot of weeds poking through anyway and I just planted straight into it. The mulch was well rotted so I did a little bit of direct sown stuff but a lot of the stuff that I started I'd raised in modules and I just planted straight into that mulch and their roots made their way down through into the soil and I had an instant veg patch and I had a wonderful crop in that first year. So my advice to anyone who wants to try it is literally that, just try it and see what works. Now that was one setting, I've done it also at an allotment site where there were tons of docks and thistles and I did, yep, same sort of approach um, and no cardboard again because it was a, the whole allotment I mulched, I thought I'm never going to get cardboard down on there. So for a couple of years I was actually taking out docks and thistles, not doing that too aggressively so I wasn't digging it over to take them out. I got one of these wonderful things that everyone's using now called the Hori Hori which is like a pointed Japanese tool and it's really, really really useful. It means you can get the blade down into the soil and, and lever that taproot out without disturbing the soil too much. So it will vary depending on your site and what you want to do. But again, if you just want to make a shrubby border, put some cardboard down over some grass, 
plant your shrubs into the ground, cardboard around them, and put a nice thick bark mulch even on top. And there you go, you've got an instant border. Amazing. It sounds really simple. It sounds like I'm oversimplifying it, but these are real stories of things that I've seen. I've done, or I know people who've done them. It's a very interesting approach. I mean, you mentioned about planting your vegetables from pre-sown modules. Yeah. Would that be a recommended way of doing it? Yeah, it can be helpful. So there's a couple of reasons why that's helpful. It means you get to grow them on a little bit before they have a chance to be nibbled by anything else. So if you do have a garden that's full of slugs and snails, raising uh, seedlings in modules can be very helpful. It means their roots have grown on a bit. So actually what you're doing then is if you pop them into more or less the mulch layer on your bed, then the roots are going to go down and they're going to search into that soil. So it helps them to establish a bit quicker. It also means that if you're thinking about vegetable growing, you can have more of a succession. So literally, as you harvest one crop, you put another one in. Now there's a really interesting principle here about no dig growing or caring for your soil. And it's really about always keeping the ground covered. Now we can do that with mulches, but actually I'm more I'm looking into it, the more I'm thinking the best way to do that is with living plants because not only can you keep the ground cover with the above ground part of the plant, so it stops all the weathering on the soil, it stops it leaching and running away or getting blown away in the wind, but they've got roots in the ground. So those roots are doing good things. Remember those exudates that I was talking about, the roots are performing function in the ground. So the more you can have things growing in the ground, the better and successionally growing. So growing into little plugs and modules is a really good way of keeping roots in the ground. And I suppose green manures to help through the winter time. Yes, green manure is the same. Now the thing with green manures is everyone would say you'd sow green manure, then you'd dig it in. Uh -huh. Now obviously we'll take that bit away. So there are different green manures and I think we've got a lot to learn on this. Certainly I have personally and, and we're experimenting with this a little bit. I am on, on my own allotment because you can have a perennial green manure that comes back, as the name suggests, year after year. Now you might think, well, well, that's no good. The ground's going to be covered the whole time. I'm trying this year, what I'm going to do is I've got this perennial green manure with some clover and some ryegrass in it. And I'm going to cut that throughout the season, three or four times food for my compost heap, which is another thing. So I'm producing food for my compost heap from my green manure. And then I'm going to plant some brassicas in amongst it, for example, so my cabbages or my sprouts or whatever, and just manage it, manage the competition and just see how it goes. But what that means is all of those roots from those green manures are doing all those funky things in the soil, as well as your own crops roots. So I'm really interested to see where that goes in the future, because I think that could be really powerful in terms of just keeping ground covered also, quite critically, not needing lots of mulch, because this is something else that people say. Oh, I can't get hold of all that mulch, or it's really expensive, or, you know, I've got a courtyard garden, or I've got a back garden that's not accessible from anywhere. How do I get things in there? And I just love to explore more. What can we do with plants that negates the need for us to be buying in expensive mulches, for them to be produced, to be transported, to be bagged up sometimes if people are buying them in bags. There's all of those things that would be nice to take out of the system and keep it as simple as possible. Absolutely fascinating talking to you. <laughs> Thank you. What amazing food for thought. Thank you so much. Really interesting ways of gardening. And every year we all do something new and different in our gardens. But I think to try and a no-dig approach this year would be the one to go for, I think. Absolutely. Just come back to thinking, why am I doing this? What do I want out of it? I want to have a nice harmonious existence with my surroundings. And actually the opportunities are what's exciting. And that's the thing for me. No dig, growing food offers us so much opportunity. There are lots of challenges in the world, but there's so much hope in working with nature and understanding how it works. And, and it's spine tingly, it makes you feel good. You're connecting in a different way. And it's really profound, it's really exciting. 
So if you do get a chance to visit RHS Wisley, it's really well worth going to have a look at the World Food Garden. Such an exciting place. Another event that's happening here at the Community Garden. It's a busy space, Steve. It is, isn't it? Yeah, I think following on from the, the highly successful tree fest they had at back end of last year, we've got Hedgefest. I love it. So what's Hedgefest all about then, Claire? Well, Hedgefest is the, kind of the continuation, as you mentioned, of the tree festival. But it's the last chance to order any bare root fruit trees that you would like to have in your garden this year. Some are potted. You don't have to put them in the ground if you don't have the space. But it's Pecans, which is Petersfield Climate Action Network's continuation of their Fruit Tree in Every Garden initiative. And it's going to take place on Saturday, February the 24th at the Community Garden here in Petersfield from half past 10 until half past one you can order now the fruit trees need to be pre-ordered where do you order them so you go to pecan's website okay. which is petersfieldcan.org but the order window is really small so you okay. have to order by the 8th of february bare root stuff it's good i love this time of year because i know it's still murky and it's a bit gray and horrible but at the same time, there are signs of things growing, preparing, planning Absolutely. for the year ahead. And there's a huge amount of excitement to be had in that. Looking forward to the next few weeks. Yeah. Me too, Steve. Well, it's great to catch up with you again. And thank you also to our guest in this episode, Sheila Das. Thank you also for joining us. If you'd like to contact us, you can email joinusandgrow at gmail.com. You can say hello and follow us on Instagram too. You go to Growing Together underscore podcast if you'd like to find out a bit more about the seed swap our website is growingtogether-podcast.com we'll have more information there about the workshops too so until next time happy gardening growing together is new twice a month and supported by demello and company financial advice for you your family and your future get the latest editions of growing together at any time at shineradio.uk Made by volunteers in Petersfield, this is Shine Radio. I just like being in a little family. Um, I love the community spirit. I like coming out to events like this. This is my first event with Shine. I'm honing in on my editing skills right now. I've been allowed free reign of the controls this weekend. And yeah, I'm just learning loads of new skills, being able to broadcast, interview. It's really good. Petersfield's Shine Radio. You make it shine. Call Petersfield 555 500 or email team at shineradio.uk.